Greetings and welcome to Converging Streams, Interfaith Fellowship in Our Modern World. Our program is a production of the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship. This installment, Reflections on the Spiritual Power of Nonviolence, Part 3 of 3, features excerpts from a 2013 interview on Indianapolis radio station WICR for the program Journey's Fire with host Richard Brendan discussing with Reverend George Wolfe his book, The Spiritual Power of Nonviolence. Here is the final installment of that interview. Well, I thought about your book. I thought about this uh, apocalyptic theology that you've also addressed. You dress it very well in the book. We've touched on it in this interview. When something happened just recently with um, Michelle Bachman's anti-Muslim paranoia that's made all the press, where she basically was accusing specific people, including Yuma Abedin, Deputy Chief of Staff for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, um, of being aligned with terrorists. And I was so pleased to see John McCain... Right. Stand in Congress and go to the defense of these people. So God bless John McCain for doing that. The um, 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 we have to understand that you know a world without conflict. Or, I'm sorry, a world without war is not a world without conflict. Good point. A world without war is a world in which we learn to deal with our conflicts in nonviolent ways. And so when I see activism occurring. Uh, intensifying in our um, in the public arena in our uh, in our country, that's good. It's a mm-hmm. good thing. Now we tend to think uh, we tend to think uh, uh, that activism is bad if we don't agree with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, we have to realize that there's there's in a world without war, in a world where we're going to still have conflict, but deal with the conflicts in a nonviolent way. You know, we're going to have people being very passionate and dynamic in their activism. Uh, and, and it may go against what we what we believe, mm-hmm. um, but that's far better than uh, than having having a violent revolution. Um, now, I think what we're getting at, though, and what you're getting at here, is the concept of uh, civic, civic, civil. That is a civil debate and civil dialogue. Yes. And and too often in the political arena, the uh, the, the pundits and the politicians themselves cross that line. And uh, that's that's what's unfortunate, and that really hurts the cause. See, mm-hmm. uh, Michelle Bachman hurt her 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 cause by uh, crossing that line, and uh, and then she then John McCain had the opportunity, of course, to to, to set it right. But um, it actually it actually whatever whatever was that uh, uh, the concern was uh, coming from the other side there um, uh, that that. That has been totally overshadowed by the, uh, you know, negative, aggressive, uh, uncivil uh, rhetoric. Mm-hmm. The subtitle yeah. of your book is "Interfaith Understanding for a Future Without War." Can you speak to the fallacy of a phrase we often hear, unfortunately, "a just war"? Right. Yes. Um, you know, uh, in, in today's world, there is no such thing as a just war, and. Uh, uh, we, uh, we 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 tend to throw out that that term uh, in in very careless ways. Um, of course, the doctrine of just war goes all the way back to uh, Saint Augustine and Saint Thomas Aquinas. And you know, at that time, in, in, there were plenty of open battlefields, so those two two armies wanted to go out and and duke it out uh, with uh, bows and arrows and catapults and so forth. Why they they could, and civilians wouldn't uh, be harmed uh, usually. 
but as time goes on, weapons become far more uh, lethal. Um, population centers become much more dense. The code of an honorable code of warfare degenerates and is degenerated now into uh, what we what we see in terrorism. Uh, and, and so it's it's not possible to have a, a just war anymore. And we shouldn't use that phrase. Uh, maybe a person wants to say it's a necessary evil. Um, but it's just that it's a, it's an evil. We shouldn't try to uh, somehow uh, code it in uh, in language that uh, makes it sound ethical or moral because it's not. We're talking about the spiritual power of nonviolence with author George W. Wolf. We've been talking throughout the interview about Gandhi. Can you talk about the concepts, some of the key concepts in which Gandhi based his philosophy of nonviolence? Well, yes. I mean. Uh, First of all, uh, I, I've already mentioned tapasya, yes. which is this process of allowing the negative energy to be transformed into a positive direction. I've, I've mentioned satyagraha, which is this allowing oneself to become a public victim of the injustice, to call public attention to the injustice, and to create a groundswell of support so reform can take place. The best illustration of that is Rosa Parks. When Rosa Parks sat on the bus and refused to give up her seat, she was arrested, taken to prison, fingerprinted, taken to prison, and so forth. And in doing so, she was performing an act of satyagraha. That's that process, that that act of calling public attention to an injustice by allowing yourself to become a public victim of the injustice. Uh, we saw that in the Occupy movement recently, when uh, the police sprayed pepper spray on the students who were uh, demonstrating at, in uh, in California. Um, that's that's satyagraha in action. Uh, and sometimes it's necessary to, to do that in order to uh, create the kind of groundswell support that's necessary to bring about reform. Um, but Gandhi also had a concept of Swaraj, Swaraj, which is, uh, which is generally translated as home rule, but which I think we can apply to ourselves individually as self-reliance. It's very much, I, I, I see it as a kind of an Emersonian idea, if you want to look at it on the level of the individual. We need to be strong and self-reliant, economically independent, uh, to the degree to which we are in that position. To degree, the same degree, we are able then to be to take much more risks, uh, which are sometimes required when we are, are pursuing a, a nonviolent path. Another important aspect of Gandhi, though, is really his ability to bring together people of diverse faith traditions. So Sikh, Muslim, Hindus all came together uh, to. Um, uh, adopt his approach to uh, nonviolence and to um, uh, uh, dealing with uh, the, the British oppression in India. And this interfaith theme, I think, is, is, is extremely pertinent now because we're living in a world which is increasingly pluralistic. Mm -hmm. it's, re it's really necessary for us to understand and appreciate the, 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 um, the collective wisdom, which I think, uh, the wisdom which comes from the great religious traditions, which I call collective wisdom of humanity. Every religion has, as the great world religions have contributed to this collective wisdom of humanity, and we need to appreciate the contribution that each of the religions has made. But uh, more recently, this interfaith movement has really had quite an impact, and I can give you a, a, a personal example here in Muncie, Indiana. Sure. And uh, there are, um, well, there's an organization, an international organization called the United Religions Initiative, and it was begun by uh, Bishop uh, William E. Swing, uh, who happened to write the foreword in my book. Um, 
And uh, the idea behind the organization is to develop cooperation circles around the world uh, at the grassroots level where people can come together from various religious traditions and have dialogue and approach uh, 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 problems within the community and uh, resolve conflict that may arise between uh, faith uh, traditions uh, uh, before they where they develop into um, uh, in, into something highly negative and disruptive. And um, in Muncie, Indiana, we have the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship, we call it. And, and last, uh, well, over the last several years, a woman uh, who is in the, uh, a leader in the Jewish Reform Temple in town, and a woman who is uh, with the mosque uh, here in, in town, they all, they got together and they said, let's bring together members of the temple and members of the mosque and have a dinner. And this, this was, uh, I guess, started eight years ago or so. And they did that for um, two or three years. And, and recently, now this past year, they opened it up to uh, other churches and religions that could come. And we had a, a wonderful meeting on March 4th, last, uh, uh, last March, uh, where we had a dinner of over 125 people came. We had uh, uh, prayers or, or thanksgivings uh, before dinner uh, from Hindu, uh, Sikh, uh, Jewish, Christian, uh, Muslim traditions, and Baha'i was also there represented. It was just a wonderful uh, event, and uh, it's an example of interfaith peace building. It's peace building is when you develop these uh, events or have events which bring people together, where you find common ground, you capitalize on that common ground, and uh, I would encourage you, uh, encourage uh, people if they're interested in that in their community to look into developing uh, a cooperation circle with this organization called the United Religions Initiative because it's really uh, having an impact around the world. It, it, because it's on a grassroots level, it isn't quite as visible uh, as, uh, as you might think it should be, but uh, it, it's really a very constructive approach to interfaith peace building. And that really is something that Gandhi started. He brought together Muslims, Hindus, Christians, and uh, Sikh uh, traditions to... Uh, to, to uh, support this moral cause of, uh, uh, of the independence of India. You um, shared something beautiful out of the Tao in one of your chapters, and I wanted to read it and then ask you about a conversation you had. This particular piece says, A good soldier is not violent. A good fighter is not angry. A good winner is not vengeful. A good employer is humble. A brave and passionate man will kill or be killed. A brave and calm man will always preserve life. Right. And it struck me as we talk a lot on this program about this balance of masculine and feminine energies. I remember a conversation I had several years ago with David Corton. He had a book that he'd written many years ago called The Great Turning. And he actually had a chapter on war and talked about how oftentimes war is caused by this predominant masculine energy that's right. taken place, and, and men especially not getting in touch with the feminine energy. You had, and boy, I was envious of this, you had an opportunity to have conversation with Robert Bly. Right. Uh -huh. And I'd like for you to share a little bit about that conversation, what he shared with you. Well, yes, uh, it, was, it was interesting. Um, uh, I was uh, studying you know, Hindustani music and so forth, and I started playing uh, Indian music on the soprano saxophone, ragas on the soprano saxophone, and, and the tubble player who uh, Robert Bly would use, Robert Bly would, would speak and read poetry, and uh, the sitarist would play music, uh, play a raga, and the tubble player would accompany. And this was a 
part of his um, men's conferences. And mm-hmm. Well, I went to one of them because I knew the tuple players were sort of invited to go, and, I, and that's how I got a chance to meet Robert Bly. Well, it turns out Robert Bly used to play saxophone. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so we kind of struck up a little uh, conversation, and he, he said, why don't you come on and play something? You know, So I played something on stage uh, during his men's conference that was at the it was in indianapolis and then afterwards i got a chance to have lunch with him and then have, have dinner and, and you know and i said to him i said you know when someone told me that what you do is is you read poetry while sitaris plays a raga and the tuba player accompanies and you, you do this to a group of men i said i said you know this i don't see how this would work i mean I used to be a member of a poetry group, and we would have poetry meetings, and and 90% of the people that came were women, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I said, well, how many men come to these conferences? And he says, well, well we know, sometimes 2,000. <laughs> so <laughs> I said to Robert Bly, I said, I just, it's one of those things which I never would have thought would work, but it does work. And he says, yes, yes, it does work, because he's touching a deeper level of the person he's getting he's getting beyond using poetry and music simultaneously allows him to get beyond the intellect and those masculine energies to 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 allow them to subside so that that those right brain faculties that I've mentioned were uh, would be awakened and uh, oftentimes he'd read the poetry of Rumi the Sufi poet and which uh, is beautiful images uh, which the language of which is very you know right brained oh, yes. language not yes. language that's logical and rational the language which evokes that deeper part of ourselves and that's that feminine part of ourselves thank you for listening to converging streams interfaith fellowship in our modern world our program is a production of the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship and is supported by our community We thank you, our listeners and followers, for your support. To connect with Converging Streams, including listening to our entire catalog of past programs, getting our latest new content, and making your own contribution to this program, visit our website, convergingstreams.org. Converging Streams is produced by Tony Piazza and George Wolfe. Thank you for listening and have a pleasant week.